Hi, this is Caitlin McFarland. And this is Emily Gibson. And we're the co-executive directors of ATX Television Festival. And you're listening to the TV Campfire. This season, we'll be bringing you some of our favorite panels from past festivals, along with behind-the-scenes commentary and some of our fondest memories about putting it all together, while also giving you an inside look to what's happening with this year's virtual festival, which we're calling ATX TV From the Couch. It's like a flashback episode and a spoiler alert all rolled into one. So get back on the couch, pour yourself a drink, and enjoy talking TV together. Emily. Kate. Okay. So last week we debated about weeks, if it's full weeks or half weeks. It is Monday again. It was a hot topic for my family after they listened to discuss with me the way that we both tell time. Do they side? Was it like split? Were they all on your side? Like how did that go down? Of course they were all on my side (laughs) because they're my family and that is their job. But it was an interesting spark of conversation for a little bit via my mom, my sister, and my text feed with my dad jumping in via my mom since he doesn't have a cell phone. Correct. Well, uh, the way to solve some of it would be to just work in days. Yes, For some reason, days are scarier than weeks. I don't know what that is. I think so too, even though there's more of them. That is true. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how that works or why that works, but the thought of like actual counting down days is kind of terrifying. Sure. Well, today is Monday, as I said, so it is 32 days. Friday will be 28 days or four weeks. Currently, I still think there are five weeks. Tomorrow, I don't know. The fact that it's Monday is also easier for me to say five weeks. When it comes to Tuesday or Wednesday, I start to lose ground. You know, I can understand that because when you're looking at Monday, you're like, I have this entire week in front of me. So I can at least understand that. But as soon as you get to Tuesday and especially Wednesday, no more entire week. So do you want to start doing days? I don't know. Let's not talk about it. (laughs) <laughs> and then it's hours and minutes and I, I just can't. I'm done. I've reached my threshold. Fair, fair. <laughs> but I'm excited because this week, for those that didn't follow along, or I guess by the time this comes out last weekend, we announced our first programming for ATX TV from the couch, or rather Busy Phillips announced our first programming because she announced herself, as did Krista Miller. And it's in our newsletter this week. So if you didn't get that, like, you should sign up for those. Registration is open. We've got we've got news. The virtual festival has news, finally, a month later. <laughs> well, and the thing that I love about this is that they signed on already to come back next year for season 10 and actually be at the festival in person. But we still wanted to do something with Cougar Town this year just in a, hey, we are already doing this. People have already set aside the time. We want to give people a little bit of an insight into what the festival will look like next year. And they were down to participate, as is Bill Lawrence. And to do something a little different. Like, I mean, we will continue to announce what things are. But this is Busy and Krista from the show, like, drinking wine, talking about life. Like, it's not a reunion, but it is still Cougar Town. We also announced in the newsletter as well that Scrubs is still doing a mini reunion. It will not be the full thing and it will have little twists. So stay tuned for that. But it's still Zach and Donald and Judy and Sarah and John C. McGinley. And it's still 
it's still scrubs. Zach and Donald are doing their podcast right now. So it still felt like we needed a little bit of this in our lives. And I also made me remember that Bill Lawrence was at our very first physical festival. Never thought I'd start referring to it as a physical festival. (laughs) Also true. He was at our first physical festival and now he'll be at our first virtual festival. And I just, I think that that's lovely. That's really cool. And he was one of the first people that signed on for the first physical festival Mm -hmm. in a way that he was like, don't worry, I'll wrangle people. We'll figure it out. I'll be there. He did it again. (laughs) And I feel like that's what's (laughs) happening again now is he is definitely wrangling all of these people and he is making it happen. And again, we don't know what's going to happen, but they're going to show up sometime between June 5th through 7th on our YouTube channel. And it's going to be great. It is going to be great. And so for those of you that aren't a part of the newsletter and didn't see this on social media, know that you can go to atxfestival.com and on that front grid is a register for the ATX TV from the couch virtual festival. Click there. It takes you to Eventbrite. It's a very quick, free registration that will then give you updates on programming and how to tune in. And it's going to be on YouTube, as we said last week, but it will just kind of make it like mindless for you. You'll get your reminders you'll get your links, that kind of thing. So if you could register, that would be great. Some people have been asking, like, what exactly is this? You tune in on June 5th. What are you doing? And, you know, we're planning it now. You know, at the beginning, I don't think we've, we fully knew. We're watching a lot of these other virtual events. You watched a Queer as Folk reunion this weekend. Which I was incredibly impressed by. It was four and a half hours, and the way Scott Lowell from Queer as Folk, I don't know if he organized the whole thing, but he was definitely hosting and leading it, and the way that they would bring in all sorts of different cast and crew, it was, I I couldn't sit and watch the whole thing, but definitely had it on for a while and would tune in and tune out and just entertain me the whole time. Yeah, which I think is every one of these that we watch, we're going to steal a little bit from, we're going to like make it, you know, a little different, but our goal is that it's going to feel like a festival. You're going to tune in. The big difference is that you're at home <laughs> and it's a linear, it's, it's linear programming. So, you know, there aren't choices to be made, but you're going to get full length panels on industry topics with executives. You're going to get full length panels with Krista and busy talking about shows and just, you know, pour yourself a glass of wine with them and have a drink. We're going to have coffee with people. We're going to have virtual happy hours, live music. It's going to hopefully, our bar for ourselves is it's going to help capture a little bit of that TV camp for grownups. So it's not all the same thing. It's not just music for four and a half hours. It's not just conversation for four and a half hours. It's inspiring you in a few different ways. It's going to have snack breaks and drink breaks and music dance party breaks and things for you to really experience television fully and uh, hopefully discover some new things and celebrate some old things, which is what the physical festival is. Yeah. I think the thing that we are really trying to figure out right now that we have some, I think, really fun ideas about is how to keep people, how to engage with the audience and the attendees during the three days. And basically, whether that's sending you to social media to interact with us, whether that's YouTube comments, whether that's telling you how to make our favorite margaritas and our favorite queso and what that looks like so that people can be participating along with us. And then also figuring out how we can help people also group together and watch and interact with each other. So that is all still to come and will be coming in the next few weeks, but it will definitely have a bit of a feel of okay, I'm sitting in a room watching a panel. Now I can still talk to other attendees, still ask questions, still interact with the panelists. It's just, it'll look a little different, but still have the same feel. 
we're figuring that out and watching different people, you know, the way that we can do audience questions. And again, these virtual happy hours, like I want to feel like you can see each other in some capacity. Trivia night, we're hoping to do a little bit of that. But then also like utilizing social media. I think that's the thing that I was already a part of some social media worlds, particularly Instagram. But during this time, this alone together, apart together for us, hashtag TV together is really making me lean into it is engaging if you let it be. Like there is a way in which it's dividing. I think before with social media, it might feel like you have a bit more separation between people when you're just reading tweets or staring at people's Instagram feeds. But there are ways to actually, whether it's the live Instagram stories, honestly, a lot of those make me feel like someone's FaceTiming with me. Last night, I did a Zoom trivia night with my family that felt very like we were all getting drinks at the same time. Like it did feel, it's weird, but it did feel like we were all hanging out in a way that I don't think I've ever felt before with video things. I've been doing weekly, pretty much weekly Sunday afternoon happy hours with girls in my book club. We have a drinking game where when someone else walks behind the person and you can see them in the camera, everyone has to take a drink. Like a husband or a child. Yeah, like a child or a husband. Two drinks for for an animal. Like, but it's a fun, it's a fun interactive way to do it. Well, along those lines with drinking and things, I think we should update people on our quarantine food. Favorite segment. We like to support the the Austin local eateries. Before I talk about mine, I know I delivered some tacos for you and a frozen margarita last time. Have you ventured into any kind of delivery pickups? I still haven't. And uh, I mean, basically, you know this, and without going too much into it, I've been eating very weird during quarantine. Like I've had some weird eating habits. I mean, I gave up drinking for Lent and then I go on and off of being paleo. And so I've had this like very kind of strict eating regime, which is very boring and we don't need to go into, but I am now to the point where I'm like, at least once a week, what I really want to do is support local restaurants. So I will probably just be copying you or letting you bring me things, which I also love, but figuring out, okay, what is, what is the thing that I really want to go get or really want to order? We've talked about my love of fried chicken sandwiches. I feel like I may just do, you know, the roundup in Austin of all the best fried chicken sandwiches. I mean, stay tuned for our fried chicken sandwich Instagram. It's going to be so good. Yeah, it's going to be a huge success. But it really, I mean, I've really just been doing grocery deliveries. And so I've been cooking Mm -hmm. in a way that I never cook. So that's been the adventure for me. But it's really, I mean, grocery deliveries every, every few weeks. And that's been sustaining me. But I am very excited, especially with what you're about to talk about. You, (laughs) I feel like hinted at it. Last week? I did. Did you talk about it all I last did, week? I did because last week we had wanted to do, so Texas barbecue, it's a thing, obviously. And last week we wanted to do this, but found out while things are easier in shelter at home times and quarantine times, it still requires a little bit of planning and you can't do like Saturday, let me order some Franklin's. So we basically planned that this Friday we would get Franklin's. So this past Friday, Franklin's has set up. So normally for those that don't know, Franklin's barbecue, very famous, particularly famous for its brisket. Aaron Franklin is a God amongst Texas barbecue fanatics. He has his own chase commercial. So obviously he's a big deal, but normally you either have to stand in line, get in line at like seven or eight o'clock in the morning. It opens at 11. They're out by 2 p.m. This is a regular occurrence. If you want to order in advance, it's got to be 30 days in advance and you have to 
order like 10 pounds of meat, like it's a, or more, I don't even know, like a ridiculous amount of, of meat. But during this time, because they can't, you can't stand in line, can't do these things. They've set up a really great organization of three days in advance, which makes sense for them, like operationally, in my opinion, because like three days in advance, they know how much people have ordered. Like there's no sliding scale. It's like on Tuesday morning, I ordered for Friday. And so that means by Thursday night, when you would start making barbecue or whenever they do, they know how much they have sold for Friday, which just makes a ton of sense to lower their costs. But so we signed up for Friday, 1 p.m. pickup. We ordered three pounds of brisket, two pounds of ribs, and one pound of pulled pork. That's the secret one. Guys, you wouldn't think that the pulled pork would be as good as it is, but it's like maybe the best one you've ever had. Um, And a couple of sides. And we pulled in at one o'clock. Everybody in the parking lot's got masks on. They're taking social distancing very seriously. You pull into your parking spot. You text howdy to the people inside. And you pop. pop, And then they say, like, what's your check number? And they fire your order then. So you wait about 10, 15 minutes for them to, like, prepare it. And you open your back of your car and they put it in, and then they walk away, and then you close the back of the car. But while we were waiting, Rambler Sparkling Water, which is also a Texas brand, had a little Airstream set up. They had you roll down your window, and they offered you a six-pack of sparkling water, which they also put in the back, which was very cute. Oh, that's lovely. And so then we gorged ourselves on meat, which was delicious, (laughs) and it totally lives up to its hype. It had been a while since I'd had Franklin's, probably over a year. And the people on my Instagram were very jealous and trying to figure out how to get it in other states. Franklin's is absolutely up there, but I do feel like you need someone else to eat it with you. Yes, you do. But I think Loro might be at the top of my list for someplace I want to go to, which is Franklin's meets Uchi, which is the best sushi restaurant in Austin. And so it's a combination kind of of those two. So I feel like Loro might be number one on my list, especially for their to-go frozen gin and tonics. Oh, frozen gin and tonics. I was like, oh my gosh, what is it? Which I don't even drink gin, but they're so good. Uh, You have gin martinis, so you do drink gin. That I just totally lied to all of our listeners. I do drink gin martinis, but I guess I don't make them myself. So I don't think about it at home, but you're right. I do love, I love a Hendrix martini. So in another sweep to just go quarantine drinking, Evan makes a great martini and I would never have made a martini at home, but he like makes an especially good martini. And so about once a week, he, we've, we've started trying some new gins, but we do have Hendrix. We have a martini hour. We had them at trivia night last night. They're delicious. I love it. I love, uh, I mean, yeah, I've been drinking a lot of, a lot of bourbon, a lot of wine and some tequila. Thank you for dropping those off at my house. You're welcome. You've been supplying me with so many things. I really much appreciate it. Booze. (laughs) I know. I don't know that I would make it through this without you dropping things off at my house. So just so you know, I really do thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. You know, I'm happy to take that on. If I'm going to expose myself to the world, I might as well share some of it. I appreciate it a lot. (laughs) I figure that's like the community effort is that I'm protecting you and the other world by minimizing your excursions. You know, I I agree with that and I support that. If I'm going to do it already, I might as well spread the love. So into our next segment before we introduce the new panel is obviously quarantine watch list. What did you watch this week, weekend? Well, I am now on Friday Night Lights season five. 
Congratulations. I'm moving through. I was actually going to try and finish this weekend, but then I did dive into a few other things that I'll tell you about in a minute. But I did appreciate after last week's podcast came out, I got a number of texts this weekend from people who are also rewatching Friday Night Lights (laughs) and that haven't watched it in a number of years and especially talking about the Austin locations, because some of these people are people that were newer to Austin and so haven't rewatched it since being in Austin and how fun it is to see it in kind of a new light. I'm a little nervous about getting to the end, although I very much remember how it ends. But I'm wondering when the finale aired, there was such a sadness that it was over. Yeah. Do you get that on the rewatch? Like, I mean, I guess I can go back and just start over at season one, which is what I do for Shit's Creek. I get to the end of Shit's Creek and then just like immediately restart it over. <laughs> welcome to my life she does (laughs) I'm only on like what fourth fifth rewatch now no big deal in one year I know since early August if we're going to be honest but I'm wondering what the end of Friday Night Lights is really going to make me feel especially knowing how it's going to end because you honestly didn't know what coach and Tammy were going to do and they made the best decision and it's the best finale and I can't wait to get to the scene that I remember so clearly, who knows if this is what actually happens with Coach and Tammy. I feel like it's in their entryway, and she's basically like, it's my time. Like, we've done all these things for you, and now it's my time, and you don't know what exactly is going to happen. And I'm I'm excited to get there. So how far are you in to season five? Uh, I think I have four more episodes. What else have you been watching? Well, I'm also rewatching Buffy at a much slower pace, uh, which is my first time to rewatch Buffy in a number of years. But I have also already rewatched Buffy upwards of seven times. So you can do it at a slower pace. But the fun thing is my goddaughter, who's 17, is watching it as well. And we just got to, she just got to the, she's a little ahead of me, but she just got to the end of season two, which I don't feel like there's a spoiler for this anymore. But when Buffy kills Angel and being with her through that experience and how devastating (laughs) it is. I felt like I really, I understood her in a whole, or she understood me in a whole new way. And now that we're getting to bond over this, I did tell her as soon as she finished it and we were talking about it, I begged her to at least wait 24 hours before starting season three. Cause I was like, you need to live in this sadness. You need to mourn this for a little bit. I think she made it 22 hours and then she started season three. But I was like, I just, you need to be sad about it for a minute. I had to wait an entire summer and didn't know what was going to happen. You need to do that too. I think about that a lot, the waiting an entire summer for things. We've talked about it a lot. That's the big difference in watching things these days. Is Although I guess there's some shows where you have to wait an entire year for them to come back sometimes. True. True. Like when something ends on a cliffhanger. I did start also three new shows that I will slowly be making my way through. I watched the first episode of Hollywood, the new Ryan Murphy Netflix show, which a lot of people are talking about. A lot of people have different opinions on it. It's basically an idealistic view of Hollywood in the... Now I'm going to get strong. I feel like it's in the 40s. Who's in it? Uh, great question. The main character... No, like 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 the actual character. If you want me to confirm whether it's the 40s or say the 50s, like who's a famous person that's like character Well, they haven't gotten to the famous people yet. Oh, okay. Then I can't help you. At least I don't think... It's all kind of, I mean, right now it's new characters and brand new people that then they'll bring in the famous people with. But it's fun. It's bright. It's fun. The production value is amazing. Is it an hour or half hour? It's an hour, but I feel like the first episode is 45 minutes, which I was very impressed with, especially Ryan Murphy coming from FX and doing Netflix. They're not super long. Well, I watched The Politician and 
he had, a, they ranged a lot of different times. Like, I think there was one episode that ended up being like 30 minutes. Like they played with that a lot. I like that. I like that a lot. Cause as soon as I look and see something's over an hour, I just can't do it. But even seeing 57 minutes, I'm like, oh, I can do this. I can do an hour of sitting down. And then I started Never Have I Ever, which is also on Netflix, produced by Mindy Kaling. It's really cute. It's delightful. Teen comedy. I'm a few episodes into that. But the one that has captured my heart, that is gut-wrenching, and I'm deeply in love with is Normal People on Hulu. I saw Anna Fricky talking about watching that. It is, I'm going to say it's a simple story, but only because it really just follows these two characters and their relationship. And so there are some side characters, but you don't even really spend time with the side characters. The reason it's not a simple story is because they're very complicated people and their relationship is very complicated, complex, all those words we love. It's set in Ireland. It's slow, but it's not, it's never boring. They're only half hour episodes and a lot happens in each of them, but it's just so gut-wrenching to watch these characters, what they're going through, but then also the decisions that they're making that you understand, but also you just want to shake them sometimes because you see what they're doing and you see the decisions they're making, but they do a good job of showing you why and what their headspaces are. But I am halfway through and I, I deeply, deeply love it. All right. I wrote it down. I think I saw a couple of people watching it that like, as we're about to talk about, I finished a few things this weekend. And so like, I'm looking to fill some holes now, especially in this watch a bunch of things time that we are in. Not that I don't always watch a bunch of things. <laughs> <laughs> well, put, put normal people on your list. I'd be interested to see what you and Evan think about it. Okay, great. I finished three things this weekend. Oh, that must feel so good. It does feel good, but I also am now like there's a vacuum. I got to fill the vacuum. So I feel like with quarantine, a lot of people are approaching this too of like, what's something you've never watched or want to rewatch? Like your Friday Night Lights is your want to rewatch, like bigger yep. thing to rewatch than discovering something new and then maybe keeping up with something week to week. And so this week I finished a couple of things in this category. So the new show I tried that I've watched over the last week is CBS All Access's Why Women Kill. It's been out for a while. Yeah, interesting. It's Mark Cherry. It is fun. Like, it's interesting. It heavily reminds me of Desperate Housewives. Like, I mean, from the narration and the women and the sort of the bright colors and sort of the way that it's like, it's production design and value. It's all, it's very reminiscent of Desperate Housewives. It was a fun watch. Scott Porter is in a couple of episodes. <laughs> Didn't it. remember that. Didn't know that. He does not play a nice man. Just spoiler alert. I've been getting up really early and I need a show to watch early in the morning that it was my legacies watch before where I'm kind of doing some other things, but it, it feels good to do. And Why Women Kill was that. Like not a lot of deep thoughts to say. How did you choose it? I think I was on CBS All Access for The Good Fight and I saw it. And I was okay. like, oh, this has been out for a while. There's 10 episodes. That's all there is. But I, it had been a while since we'd seen stuff from Mark Cherry that I was like, what is he doing? It's very Desperate housewives -y. That was also good. I like a solid 10 episodes and out. All right. And then the big, the big drum roll is that we finished on Thursday night the season three of The Leftovers, all of The Leftovers. We have took two weeks and we watched all of it. 
Let's start with how did you feel about rewatching the ending? How many years later? How, when did it? Almost like pretty close to the day of when it ended. I think it's 2017. So I think it was three years ago. I think somebody will need to fact check me on that. I felt really good in that the thing I remembered the most was the finale. Like you and I talked a lot about that throughout the three seasons, there was a ton I forgot slash didn't remember. Also watching it all together, there are Easter eggs very early on in ways that I don't think I put together with years between them. I mean, they started early with Perfect Strangers references and like all of these different things that came back around. The character of God, even, that we've talked a lot about with, um, it's a Matt, Matt, Matt world episode where Matt talks to God on the sex boat with Fraser the Lion. Uh, I didn't realize that God had been in previous episodes with Kevin. I just thought, I just didn't put it together. I either wasn't paying attention or something else. The finale, I felt like I remembered really well. And it's interesting. You just said, you know, if you see something's over an hour, you're kind of like, ugh. All of the episodes up until the finale were in the 50-ish or even 45 early on minute range. The finale is an hour 13, but I got really excited that it was an hour 13. I was just about to say, actually, for the leftovers, I was probably very excited because I wanted as much as possible. I remember almost those exact feelings when it originally aired its finale. I was like, oh my gosh, yes, we get an hour and 13 minutes or 11 minutes, whatever it was, of The Leftovers. I'm so excited. And it is the fastest hour and 13 minutes that I've ever experienced because I don't think this is really a spoiler. And if so, it's been a number of years. But that whole episode, you're basically 98% of it is just Kevin and Nora. Yeah. It, it is their story. It's almost a mini movie. It is like a however many years later this is where they are. Are they finding each other? Are they going to end up together? Where have they been? But it is like just, it's such a standalone. And so it just feels like this extremely quick moment, even though it's a good 15, 20 minutes longer than every other episode. And I cried a lot. It like sweet, sweet tears. Also notice that the aging makeup on both of them is very, very good. <laughs> I do remember the aging. It's very, very good. I have, I need to finish it. I did, I want to reread Mo Ryan's piece that she wrote about quantum physics and kind of her reactions to the leftovers because I still, I need to go back and figure out why because I did ask Evan, you and I talked about this. I remember after the finale, a lot of people were like, do you believe her to, to what Nora's story is? And both you and I had the reaction of like, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to believe her. Of course I believe her. <laughs> do you remember Why that? wouldn't I believe her? And I want to find the places where it's questioned why you wouldn't, because again, I don't understand why you wouldn't. Like she tells you this story and if we've been with Kevin this whole time and everything that he's been through for three seasons, in what world, why wouldn't you believe her? Because you've seen these extraordinary things that Kevin's had to do. Well, you also have gotten to know Nora over three seasons and- it never occurred to me she would lie because she wasn't that character. There were definitely characters along the way that I would have been like, mm, I don't know if they're telling the truth, but she just never was that one. Well, my question is less that she would be lying and more that she, like, people don't believe Kevin dies three times and, like, yeah. goes to the other side. Like, that that is real. And so, like, what is the experience she had that, I don't know, I guess those are different. What are the reasons why you wouldn't believe her? She's lying. She 
is hallucinating, didn't experience yeah. what she thought she experienced. Like, is that place real? Are they over there? And I guess I always believed all the kind of extraordinary things were happening to Kevin. So I, of course, believe the extraordinary thing happened to her. But anyway, it was delightful. And it is such a good rewatch. And people think it would be heavy in this time, but it was the right balance of like everything. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. But the, the other thing I finished that will lead us into today's panel is last night was, which by Friday will have been this last Sunday night, was the season three finale of Westworld. And we'd been watching week to week. And so I saw it. Excellent. What did you think? I liked it a lot. It is very interesting. I will fully admit I did not watch season two. So I watched season one. <laughs> Wait, you didn't watch season two at all? I think I saw one or two episodes, but I don't really remember them. I do remember there was samurais in them and there is a samurai in season three. So he comes back, but I was told I could jump over it. And so I did um, and just decided week to week to watch with Evan because he had watched season two. It's very different. It's like way more. I don't think this is a spoiler, but if Westworld season one they're in the fabricated Westworld game with hosts and whatnot. Season three, it's the hosts are in the real world. It's a futuristic world, but they're around the humans and they've come, they're self-actualized and they are, they've got new goals and are they going to take over specifically Dolores has various goals. The thing that I think is interesting was there was some debate, at least between Evan and I, I don't think I read a lot about this, but whether or not like Dolores, which is Evan Rachel Wood, was her mission good or bad? Was she selfish? Were you on her side? And I always liked Dolores. And, and Evan had a couple of different times where he was like, oh my gosh, she's she's evil. She's gone too far. She's she's doing all of these things that she should be defeated, basically. Like she's kind of a bad guy. She's turned bad. And there's questions about it with the other characters even. But I think I won't do spoilers on this one since it just ended. But I like the way that they ended with Dolores and I stand by the fact that like I would have been on her side. I would have fought in her army. I, I sided with her a fair bit, but it's just beautiful. Like it's so beautifully shot. It's very impressive. Like I think they shot a lot in downtown LA and made it a very futuristic city. And I just, I enjoyed it. And again, leading into today's panel, the thing that I think is really cool when I had this moment at the end of watching the finale was the panel we're releasing today is Westerns Then and Now. And on that panel, we had Graham Yost and Jonathan Tucker representing Justified, John Worth and Anson Mount representing Hell on Wheels. And then we got Jonah Nolan and Lisa Joy representing Westworld before Westworld had ever premiered. And on this panel, we got to show the very first look of Westworld pre-Comic-Con. We're very proud of that. <laughs> and it was just, it was such a cool panel to have come together. And it's one I think we reference a lot about how it came together as a way of, of what we want from our panels, which was we had had John Worth and Anson Mount before for Hell on Wheels. And it was the final season was coming up or was ending. And AMC asked us if we wanted to host Hell on Wheels again. And because we'd done it again and various reasons why, we didn't think it should be a standalone show panel, but we did think it deserved representation. And we loved John and Anson and we wanted to bring them back. So we developed and pitched a panel to them that then we took to others of let's represent a modern Western. What is, to, you know, Westerns used to be the most popular thing on television series, whether it was Bonanza or anything else. Like there were tons of Westerns 
And now we don't really have a ton of them, but here were three shows that did it in very different ways. Hell on Wheels was in the past, Justified very much feels like a Western, but is Mm -hmm. a lot of different things. But thematically, it feels like a Western. And then here was Westworld that was a robots and futuristic, but has elements of it as well. And now let's talk about it creatively. And it just came together in a way that still makes me so happy. Like, <laughs> Well, and it is funny because I, I mean, I'm sure we talked about it then, but I also didn't put together until right now that it was a Western set in the past, a Western set in the present, and then a Western set in the future. And the through line between those three is very cool. And it's fun. And I love, I know we didn't have an actor from Westworld on it, but I also love when we pair a showrunner and creator with an actor talking about the double side of that. And then you look at Westworld and it was, it's co-created by Lisa and Jonah. And I also remember it was about to, when it was about to premiere, which I can't remember the exact premiere date, but being in LA and New York and seeing, do you remember this scene, the posters for it? Yeah. And how, because JJ Abrams is also a producer on it. They could basically only had two, two big names on the poster and sometimes it was almost always jj abrams and then it was yeah okay it was always jj but then some had lisa's name and some had jonah's name and we started noticing that we're like this is so strange like this is so weird why why they're all different and that there were all these producers guild rules and things that they had to go through and basically oh yeah and i remember hearing behind the scenes stories about JJ, Lisa, and Jonah all arguing whose name should be taken off of it. And all three of them basically being the martyr saying, take my name off. I'm not needed. (laughs) Take my name off. And they're like, JJ, you have to be on this. Like, because (laughs) new show, big deal. Lisa, you're like female leading the charge. You need to be on it. Jonah, you're a big deal. Like you're a co-creator. So, but I, I do appreciate the fact that they, instead of just deciding two people, they basically had this rotating basis for who was going to be on the poster. It sounds absolutely like all of them, but yeah. So like, I do think we were just so proud of this panel. I did. I know you wanted to talk a little bit too. So that was how we got Anson and John Worth and then getting Jonah and Lisa was this big deal. We had also did a person of interest panel that yeah, person of interest was ending. So we had Jonah there for that with those writers, but then Graham and Jonathan Tucker, Graham at this point was already on our advisory board. Yes. But you wanted to talk about the first time we met Graham. <laughs> well, I just, the thing that I love so much about Graham Yost, too, for people that don't know his credits, he wrote Speed, the Keanu Reeves, Sandra Bullock. And Broken Arrow. Beautiful movie. And then obviously created Justified. But the thing that we got him to the festival for the first time, which is also a Western-ish <laughs> in its own way, if you really stretch your imagination, was the Nickelodeon show Hey Dude that he it's very important yeah that he show ran produced I don't know that he's officially the creator yeah I don't know that he show ran it was his he is not the creator and I don't think he show ran I believe it was his first television writing job which is so cool and so fun and he we loved that show for the handful of people that watched it in the in the 90s but that was we wanted to do when we were doing our reunions we really wanted to do a hey dude reunion and so we got to him by pitching him this hey dude reunion and he was like yes i will do that and the first time he came to the festival we asked him to be on many different things and he was like 
no, I don't want to do any of those other things. And so he came. He did. Hey, dude. We may have gotten into sit on one other thing. I can't remember. I don't think so. But then we made a road trip from L.A. We did. Sorry to interrupt. We did the Hey Dude reunion, and it was the first time we did Justify. Okay. So we did old and new. So there we go. And then we did a road trip um, from L.A. up to where he and his wife, Connie, whom we also adore, live, to go to lunch with them and ask them to be on the advisory board. Really, I think the thing that made the difference was when we met him at his office, yes, you're 100% right, like echoing that, that he didn't want to really do anything with Justified. He was like, yes, hey, dude, first job ever. Love those guys. Let's do that. Then he agreed to do Justified during the festival, almost like begrudgingly, like, sure, my my current show, whatever. <laughs> my current show, fine. He had, and I, I will say this because he will agree, he had the best, he came with his wife to the festival that year. And they just had the greatest time and fell in love with Austin and got to see a lot of their friends and did what happens, I believe, oftentimes at the festival, which is you come for one thing and then you realize, oh, this is not just a convention. This is not just a conference. Like, this is fun. I've had this great TV camp experience. Okay, can I come back? Can I do more? (laughs) So that summer, after we bonded, I believe, with the family, we did a road trip up to see them. We went up to see them and went out to lunch and asked him to be on the advisory board, which he immediately accepted. And then in true grand fashion was like, what does that mean? What do I have to do? We're like, you just have to come back. You just got to come back and keep doing things. He said, I won't wrangle. Oh, yes. Because we tried to get him to wrangle many people for us and it doesn't always go well. But the next year, which he has now been back to the festival every year since. And the next year, I believe he sat on like 12 things. I know that's an exaggeration, but he basically now will sit on anything we ask him to sit on and including this Westerns panel. And I just appreciate that about him so much. Including doing some virtual festival things. He says, what will I have to do for this? <laughs> and we said, don't you worry. You just you just be ready June 5th through 7th, and we'll just bring you on as we need you. That is the beginning of our Yoast relationship. We feel like we're unofficial Yoasts in a lot of ways. Yes. They take care of us emotionally um, and do what is needed <laughs> at the festival in many ways. And to his chagrin, Graham has wrangled in the past. Um, and along those lines, I guess that we, we should acknowledge, you know, we were going to do a Justified Writers Room reunion at this year's physical festival. And that is booked for 2021. And we're so excited for it. It's going to be so much fun. All of those writers signed on in 24 hours. And within 24 hours of the shift, they were all signed on again. Like, I cannot wait to have them. It was going to be the five-year reunion. So we're just going to do five plus next year. Anything that was a good number next year is just going to be, you know, that number plus. But I guess with that, we should let people listen to this panel from a few years ago that is still very um, timely. And I guess, again, with Westworld ending yesterday, go back and watch that as well. And then listen to this panel, which is Westerns Then and Now, and it is moderated by Ben Blacker. Please welcome, from Justified, its creator and star, Graham Yost and Jonathan Tucker. Oh, all right. Please welcome from Hell on Wheels, John Worth. Yeah, do it. <laughs> and Anson Mount. <laughs> Thank you. 
And finally, from Westworld, Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy. You can, one of you can take my chair. I'll stand. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, please. I've been sitting all day. Because I was in that West Wing panel. <laughs> it was all day. <laughs> Here you go. I know it's important for the stage picture. Uh, you guys, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I want to start uh, with you Hell on Wheels fellas. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship to Westerns and what it means to you to make a Western? What are the, what are the tropes that are interesting to you? What are the uh, feelings of a Western that are interesting to you? And, and John, we'll start with you. I, I really don't know. You understand you've made a Western. Yes. Oh. Um, you know, I, I just love Westerns. I mean, I didn't know I did. Um, I didn't intend to work on them. I had a chance to work on two Westerns on television. The first was The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. Maybe some of you saw that show. Um, and that was a... That was a vastly different show from Hell on Wheels. Um, what, and I, I did not create Hell on Wheels. I came in in season three um, after these guys had already been toiling for, for two seasons to make this great show. And um, I love the, the sort of, um, this is an old school Western. I was talking to somebody this morning about, um, they were asking, you know, well, can you just take any television show on television and think of it in Western terms, in terms of those tropes, you know, the white hats, the black hats, and so on and so forth. And I think, I think in our show, we, we were a little more earnest and straight ahead in terms of the old school Western, and, and there were a lot of white hats and black hats in our show, a few gray hats, but not as many as, uh, for instance, in Graham's show, you know, there, were a lot of, there was a lot of gray in that show as a contemporary Western, and I think... Um, you know, that's, the, the, that's a difference in doing a period piece. Yeah. Um, maybe, not, maybe not the case with Westworld. That looked, <laughs> that looked pretty awesome, I have to say. <laughs> Can't wait to see that. I, I think that's a, a good point. Uh, Anson, what, what was your experience with Westerns before? Were you a fan of the genre? I think, I think usually we spend way too much time talking about uh, genre, usually. And the Western, though, is different because it's tied to our heritage as North Americans. Mm. And uh, with John and I have had the, the honor of attending the Western Heritage Awards. Yes, that's a real thing. <laughs> a few times. And um, uh, when you go there, you meet these people. These are not TV fans. These are not movie fans. <laughs> these are not starstruck people. Yeah. They're people to whom the Western is very important as a legacy. Um, it's our martial art film. Yeah. And, uh, wanna, I think that's a really important and, and, and intelligent statement. Do you want to take that apart a little bit and tell people what you mean? It's, sim you know, it's similar. Yeah. It, 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 the, it, they're, they're, it's funny. I, I grew up when we had, the, we had five channels, the three networks, PBS and the UHF channel. And on the <laughs> UHF, UHF channel, every Sunday afternoon, there was a double header of either two Westerns or two martial arts films or True. mix those two. And they're... Lots of similarities between feudal China and feudal United States. Um, 
the, 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 prior to the establishment of consistent law, you're in a place where, you, you know, can I follow my gut mm -hmm. is the central question. Is that, is that something that will determine my fate in the appropriate manner? That's all. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's very astute. And there's a reason why movies like The Seven Samurai and Yojimbo can be remade as Westerns. I mean, a lot of the, the way of thinking translates. Uh, I want to jump over to Jonah and Lisa for a moment and so ask you sort of the same question. Was the jumping on point of Westworld for you the Western? Was it the original movie? Was it sci-fi? I mean, what, what's going on in there and what, what brought you guys to, to the property? <laughs> you know, Hold your uh, mic up. Hold your mic up. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's public <laughs> forum. Um, <laughs> I know, I make it feel like we're just hanging <laughs> I out. I know, it's just like we're in your living room. Um, I'd never really been a traditional fan of, of Westerns. I didn't grow up watching them. Um, and, you know, both my parents are first-generation Americans, so it wasn't necessarily an ingrained part of my heritage. Mm -hmm. um, but when I started watching them later in life, the thing that really appealed to me about them, and the same thing that appeals to me about sci-fi and, and space opera, is, is you're dealing with characters and people in a kind of like lawless land, in a tabula rasa, where you get to really define who you are because the laws are incomplete and the rules are semi-enforced. <laughs> and I think the interesting thing about that is it forces you it forces the characters within these pieces to think about law in terms of a personal code because it can't necessarily be reinforced externally. So it's something that they have to come up with internally. And I think there's a kind of timelessness to that. You know, um, Before I was a writer, I was a lawyer. And there's nobody like a lawyer to tell you the inefficiencies and inequalities embedded in the legal system. And it's especially timely now. But uh, I think that you know we, we tend to, as individuals, all of us, you know, whether they're tiny travails, like a heartbreak that seems unfair, or huge, huge travails, like systematic oppression and you know, uh, racism and sexism, the system doesn't always work for you. It's always incomplete, and it's always evolving. And in some ways, we're all frontiersmen. And so in that way, Westerns and sci-fi, which are basically space Westerns, um, it has a really timeless appeal and a, a really great forum for exploring character. So that's what that's for what character and theme. Yeah. I think that's that's a great point. Uh, and and that idea of you know uh, the laws not really working brings us well to justified. <laughs> um, I want to talk to Graham first and and talk about and and we've spoken a couple of times. You can check them out on the Writers Panel podcast. Uh, but. We've never really talked about your idea of Westerns coming into Justified. You know, it was always about the source material, you know, and that was always the watchword. Uh, but, but where did Westerns play into the creation of the show? Um, I grew up watching Westerns, a lot of Westerns. My dad had a television show on in, in Toronto for decades that was all about movies. And so I grew up watching... Uh, a lot of westerns, but my dad's taste—he loved everything. He loved all the cereals, the Tom Mix, you know, all of that stuff. But he um, was really attracted to the the movies that sort of did something different. To understand my father, realized that in 1969, when the Wild Bunch came out, I was nine years old, and he took me to see it. <laughs> and if you've seen the Wild Bunch, you might say maybe not a movie to take a nine nine-year-old to. 
but uh, he, he, you know, he loved Peckinpah's movies, starting with Ride the High Country through Wild Bunch. And uh, then going on a few years, um, Unforgiven, which I think is one of the great Westerns ever made. Absolutely. And what they both have in common is they take what you're used to, and even Ride the High Country, what you're used to in the stories of the Westerns, and, and turn it on its head. Mm -hmm. And um, so that appealed to him, and it really appealed to me. Um, and Justified had that element, too. Um, you know, Elmore Leonard used to say, oh, it's not a Western. But Elmore, you put him in a hat, you know, and he's, he's got a gun on his hip and, and all of that, and he wears boots. But, um, I, you know, and I would always think about Elmore's writing, that his Western writing was crime fiction, mm -hmm. and his crime fiction often had a Western element, and especially um, uh, Fire in the Hole and his other Raylan Gibbons stories. Mm -hmm. So it was always our idea of taking some of the Western uh, tropes and, again, turning them on their head. Um, you know, we were lucky enough to get Jonathan in the final season of Justified. And part of that was because we knew we wanted Raylan to have one big final showdown. And we felt that the audience was expecting it would be between Raylan and Boyd. Mm -hmm. But we felt, hey, what are we going to do there? And we, we did all the math. Can Raylan kill Boyd? Can Boyd kill Raylan? Can Ava kill them both? <laughs> that actually got most votes in the room. But <laughs> um, So we said, no, we wanted a young gun. That's one of the tropes of Westerns is the young gun who's faster right. coming to town. And we were lucky enough to get Jonathan to play the part of Boone. And so we ended up getting our last big showdown. Um, and that was very satisfying. Um, so it was always on our mind. And when Michael Dinner was shooting the pilot, and this was something that went to all the other directors, he wanted to shoot it clean like a classic Western. Um, so you'll see shots in the pilot that are nice and low looking up at Raylan. And, and he's every bit the hero. That's really smart. I do want to, Jonathan, I want to jump to you and talk about uh, what's the fun of getting to play a cowboy? Um, well, it's also, you know, what's fun about coming onto a show that you are already a fan of. Uh, a show that has created some of these, like, really archetypal television characters, you know, and how do you step up in their sixth and final season and not let the fans down and also kind of bring something to somebody like Graham Yost and his team of writers who are, I mean, this is, I have to say, I've never sat on a panel with this many showrunners like this who are as so accomplished. It's like, I'm at, and, my, and my buddy, um, my, Mr. Roush and Mr. Lancheski back there from Royal Pains. I feel like this is a very intimidating room. Um, I've actually never been this intimidated. But, you're, ham, you're hemmed in. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's so exciting to come into a world that has already kind of traveled down this road, you know, as Anson said, it's like we, we know these stories. So how do you try to bring something fresh and unique and exciting to it um, and really pay respect to the genre and the writers and Elmore Leonard, as Graham has done with his team for so many seasons since his passing? Um, you know, that, that uh, showdown that we have on the show is like, I felt like a 12-year-old kid. Yeah. You know, here I am in this beautiful location. We shot it over a long weekend, so we had the, all the roads closed up in northern California, in kind of mid-southern mid, uh, mid California, way in the middle <laughs> of nowhere. And you feel like a little kid sitting there with your sidearm. Um, and, you know, in that scene, I, when I went back to watch it before coming to the panel, I didn't quite appreciate all the similarities in terms of the westerns that Grandma's team so beautifully interlaid. But, you know, the, the townspeople dropping behind. You have the two women dropping in their cars. You've got the crow. You've got this kind of, uh, you know, this, this emblematic uh, western music. So just to kind of fit into that part. Uh, and to really pay respect and try to bring something fresh and exciting to it uh, was, was wonderful. Yeah, and, and you were great in it. I mean, the, the whole scene was great. Look, the whole goddamn series was great. <laughs> we just want more. 
But you uh, can appreciate the weight of stepping into <laughs> the, that world. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, Anson, I wanted to ask you the same question. You know, you're playing, uh, as John described, as sort of a more traditional cowboy. Um, how are you finding shades in that? And also, what's the fun of, of playing in a Western? Well, first of all, you get paid to ride a horse and, <laughs> and be outside. And I, I finally understand the, why those guys in the 50s and 60s did Westerns back to back. You get to be outside. It's so different trying to shoot a show in a studio. Sure. It, their studios are designed to remove the element of chaos, which is fundamental to the creative process. <laughs> And we had a lot of chaos with the weather in, in Alberta. Um, uh, I forgot your original question. What? No, it's about playing Colin in terms of, of playing an archetypal type of character. I, yeah, it, I, I really try to steer clear of that. And I, I, I'm a big fan of um, writing down the obvious choices and then going to the opposite. Sure. <laughs> and... Uh, Really just, I, I think that the, the, the secret of, just to me what I've discovered is that truth is specificity, right? And the more specific that you can get about what it is that you're doing, who you are, what, what you're writing, what, it, 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 it helps to create its own thing. And, and especially when you're doing a TV show and you don't necessarily know what you're becoming. We were lucky we had a historical subject. But it, it's really, if you, if you put down a very general footprint, it's going to stay, it's going to be a very boring walk, yeah. you know. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's a good lesson for creators as well as creatives, I think. Um, Lisa and Jonah, let's talk about making a Western on television. <laughs> That's a big thing. Do you have a microphone? All right. Is there is there another mic? By the way, I I am available for your show. <laughs> if you didn't, our last season is premiering tonight, and then that's it. I'm off the AMC dime. They're gonna stop covering my meals. We so I, we may be smart actually to begin this conversation with the rest of you. But you know, in in the old days of westerns, Bonanza and Have Gun Will Travel. In many cases, these shows didn't leave town. And I think audiences have a different expectation these days that you're going to paint on a bigger canvas in many ways. Now, Justified had the luxury of being set in the modern day, so it was much easier to go out and shoot on location. Uh, Hell on Wheels, though, it's a big canvas you're painting on. How do, how do you manage that on a television budget? Know that this question is coming to you two next. <laughs> um. I'm pretty sure we had two or three times as much money per episode to make this show than those guys did. Um, not really. Um, you know, it, it is a challenge, but um, it helps to go to Canada, where there's a pretty, you know, significant tax credit. And a lot of it still uh, looks like the American West. Yeah. I mean, that, that was a big thing, was let's find a place that looks like Nebraska and Wyoming in, uh, you know, 1865. And so Southern Alberta kind of fit the bill there. Um, but it is really challenging. Um, you know, you're kind of scraping for every penny. Um, you know, networks aren't, uh, aren't in the business to lose money, so they're always on your ass about how much money you're spending. And you can save them money on 16 episodes in a row, and if you're 10 cents over on the 17th, it's like, you know, they're on your ass. And uh, it just doesn't make any sense. You can't... You can't win for losing with those people sometimes. Um, 
but um, you know, we managed to do it. I mean, we we didn't have a we had a healthy budget. I would say not a you know we we didn't ha- we weren't pocketing any money every week, but uh, we we did it. Yeah. Oh, you absolutely pulled it off. Um, so, so let's talk about this, you know, creating a show on the scope that you're, you've created Westworld. And even just from this three-minute clip, we can see that it is enormous in scope. It's Western and it's sci-fi, which means not just horses, which are very expensive, but special effects and things like that. How are you guys managing this and the audience expectation for fucking Game of Thrones or something? <laughs> It was actually Game of Thrones that, that um, made us feel like we could pull this off. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the 30-second pitch for Westworld was we were sort of making Days of Heaven and Alien simultaneously and then cutting them together, <laughs> which is kind of our dream project, right? I mean, you get to explore two genres, genres simultaneously uh, and, and play with the juxtaposition of both. It's, yeah. it's, it's fantastic. HBO really felt like the only place that we could make this. Uh, and, and Game of Thrones was really the inspiration for us. I mean, so many fantastic dramas on TV, period, so many, and, and so many great ones on HBO, but Game of Thrones had this commitment to um, practical production value, which is, you know, that's not, uh, that's not necessarily what's in vogue these days. I mean, there's a lot of location shooting in part because of tax reasons. I mean, naturally, TV started to look a little different because of the explosion of tax incentives driving production to North Carolina and driving production elsewhere. For Westerns, you've got a limited pool. I mean, I'd worked in New York for five years, and I loved it, and we did spend a couple of weeks thinking about, could we shoot this in Manhattan? You know, <laughs> some, some areas in Long Island that might, might pass muster. <laughs> but the commitment here from the beginning with the network was, it's got to have that big scope. You know, the, the advantage of California uh, and Southern California, part of the reason why people made, started making movies there in the first place, is that the vast diversity of landscape. So we accomplished an awful lot in California. And then, uh, you know, for me, and I've driven cross country uh, any, chance I, any chance I get uh, half a dozen times. And for me, Utah was, with all due respect, Texas. Texas is beautiful. Thank you, Texas. <laughs> uh, Utah for me was always, you know, you got a lot of places that look like uh, Colorado. You got a lot of places that look like Montana. They're beautiful places. Nothing looks like Utah. Yeah. Only place in the world looks like Utah is Wadi Rum and Jordan. Uh, and so we had the ability to go to Utah for uh, several weeks of production photography supported by a network who knew that we needed to paint on that big canvas. Uh, it's a fantastic place. And so between, you know, Southland, California and Castle Valley in Utah, which is actually where John Ford went to go make his last four films. He got tired of Monument Valley. He said, I'm, I'm fed up with Monument Valley. Give me somewhere that looks better. And they went looking and they found a place called Castle Valley. We went out to scout it with uh, the DP who shot the pilot, Paul Cameron's incredibly talented DP, and we got, to, um, we got to this ranch out in Castle Valley and wandering around it just kind of in a daze, frankly. It's as if someone took half a Monument Valley and glued it to the Alps and then ran the Colorado River right through the middle of it. And, uh, and I looked around and I said, God, it looks just like a Marlboro commercial. And Paul laughed and he said, I've shot, I've shot 12 Marlboro commercials right here. <laughs> May I ask what, what y'all's current per episode budget is? No, you, you may you not. You can ask. <laughs> I'm sorry, we're, Anson, we're not taking questions right now. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just curious and ready to be jealous. Well, it, sound, it sounds like uh, you guys had the experience where the network was absolutely behind you and shared the vision that you shared. And, and Graham, from what I understand, FX sort of had that, you sort of had that same situation with FX. <laughs> um, FX was totally behind the idea of doing an Elmore Leonard show as Elmore would want it done. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was the big commitment. But... Um, yeah, we had seven days for the entire season. It was crazy. No, we had seven days. 
I'm sure it Seven often days felt that an way. Episode. And, you know, the thing of it is, look, uh, I saw that trailer, and there's part of me that just ached with envy, but the other part, part is... I cannot wait to see that show. I was, I was one of those few dinosaurs who clapped when you asked, did you see it in the theaters? <laughs> yes, I did. Um, I already copped to being nine when Wild Bunch came out. But anyway, but it, you know, it, God bless HBO for being willing to put that kind of money into that and into Game of Thrones. I mean, well, and imagine me say, trying to do Game of Thrones on FX or AMC. You just couldn't do it. Let, um, let, me, let me say, though, to your credit, and what makes Justified one of the great shows, is you didn't have that budget, you couldn't have that expansive scope, and so you knew we have to have characters. And what well, you guys did with characters was... Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would... Yeah, but that comes back to Elmore. I mean, most yeah. of his books are people in rooms, you know, <laughs> um, talking funny to each other and, and, and then shooting each other or having sex, you know. Uh, That's all we want from TV. Yeah. <laughs> so... That, that fit that fit for our uh, our show. That said, it was set in Kentucky, and we had to shoot it in Southern California. Um, so we would get, you know, there'd be posts and emails, but that tree does not exist in Kentucky. And it's like, dude, that if okay, uh, you're right. Um, and we did, you know, we'd have to do CG palm tree removal on certain scenes and stuff. Um, but you know, it it we found an area in this area called Green Valley, which was uh, up by Magic Mountain and then in about half an hour that looked a little like Kentucky, close enough. So that became one of our home bases. Mm -hmm. uh, John and Anson, you know, we, we've talked about these sh other shows that sort of kick out uh, the genre conventions. And while Hell on Wheels is a much more down the middle sort of Western, you guys are changing things. You are kind of pushing at the boundaries of those genre conventions. Uh, how, does, how do those conversations take place in the writer's room? How does it happen even in character choices? You know, you talked about what is the obvious choice, what is a different choice. Maybe you can come up with a, a specific example uh, for playing the non-obvious choice in either the writing or the acting. Well, one of the things we always talked about in the writer's room was let's stay in our 19th century heads. I was the only person who <laughs> remotely lived close to the 19th century. Um, but you know, it was, it, it's hard because sometimes you, you know, I would say some dumbass thing like, you know, well, um, you know, uh, what would the gun control people be talking about then? And somebody would say, there, there was no gun control in the 19th century. I mean, that was a, a gun was a tool. People, you know, they carried guns around because it was like a shovel or a hammer. They, you know, it was a tool. So uh, what was your question? That does it for me. <laughs> okay. We're really hung over. So. Yeah. We, 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 we went to this Rainy out. Street last night. I don't know. All right. I want to I make sure we have enough time for questions from you guys. If you have questions, start to line up please, at the microphones. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I want to ask uh, all of you guys something we saw in the Justified clip, uh, which I think is so important to any television, not just the Western genre, is humor. And sometimes that can get lost in a Western. Uh, so can you guys talk about working the humor in Justified? And I'd be curious to hear from all of you how you're getting some humor into your stories. Well, I, I know when Justified, one of our rules in casting was finding people who could be funny. Um, and uh, Jonathan fit that bill perfectly. Just that little twist, because again, back to Elmore, his characters 
never told jokes and they never laughed at each other, but they always had a way of putting things that was amusing. And so that was always our goal. We, you know, there were times where, well, man, we're making a comedy where people get killed a lot, <laughs> um, which makes it really funny. No. Um, <laughs> So that was, that was bred into it. But you think of back to John Ford, some of his movies. I was just thinking My Darling Clementine. There's a great sense of humor throughout that movie and, and in The Wild Bunch. Um, just the, the camaraderie of the men, and they're always giving Warren Oates a lot of crap um, throughout the whole movie. But I, I think with you know, almost any movie, you need to find those moments, and that really makes the characters ever more human because... People are always joking around. That's just part of life. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, I'm curious to hear about, I mean, your character was so scary, so terrifying, yet very funny. Yeah, I mean, they was, this, was this a conscious choice? Did you know you're being funny? Yeah, well, the lines are, I mean, some of the dialogue sure. are so fabulous, you know, but I mean, to really, the, the thing to try to um, share with people who don't work on sets or in the business is that you, it's very hard to walk into a set and create a real character unless, and it's rare, um, unless the, the creator of the show is fearless, unless they're confident in their own ability. And it comes from the showrunner, and then it trickles down in the writer's room to all the heads of production. And they allow everybody to really take risks in their respective jobs. And so there, all of a sudden, you find these wonderful characters. And that's what ends up happening in a show like Justified. Yes, why that show succeeds and also why it's funny. It's funny because real people being real characters playing authentically will find humor in lots of different situations. And they're interesting to watch, and it's compelling to watch over six seasons. So it really is a credit to the people who, at the top, are courageous and confident in themselves and allow everybody else to kind of do their job. But it's hard not to say something like, you know, uh, my, my, my balls are purple, they're so blue. You know, and not th if you play that seriously, that's really funny. And so, you know, you get that character. One of the trap door. Well, one more thing about that quickly and justified is, I mean, we had Patton Oswalt on the show. Right. He's one of the funniest human beings alive. And so we wrote this part for him, wrote it for him, called Constable Bob. And you'd write lines, and you would come up with something that you thought was really funny. And Patton would deliver it completely straight, completely earnest. He was totally behind it. And that made it hysterical. <laughs> Absolutely. It, that, it's so funny, because what I was about to say is that the flip side of that is one of the trap doors of the Western is to be in, in, unceasingly deliberate. Mm -hmm. You know, and you just, you, uh, you can only smolder for so long. <laughs> then you start to get sore. So, uh, <laughs> you know, the, you gotta, you got to be able to take the piss out of yourself to be a human being and That's to true. actually have a character, I think. So, uh, and it, it, there's something to be said for comic relief, I think. Here's how comedy worked on Hell on Wheels. Um, we had a scene where a guy, guy showed up to, you know, like our stories were either a guy leaves town or a guy comes to town. That was the story. That's a classic um, Western setup. Yeah. So uh, a guy comes to town, and he's, he's going to kill uh, Colin Bohannon. And he chases him around for a little bit. And um, Elam chases him out of town. And then he comes back to town. And then Elam tells Anson, or Colin, um, you know, there's a dude here, and he wants to, he's, I think he's going to kill you. So uh, Colin gets drunk. I'm getting to the comedy part. He gets drunk. He finds the guy. They're standing between two trains, and he says, um, are you here to kill me? And the guy goes, yeah. And Cullen says, is there anything I can do to talk you out of it? And the guy goes, no. And he pulls out his gun and shoots him in the face. <laughs> that was the scene. I laughed my ass off. <laughs> 
Were Jonah and Lisa, were you guys aware of uh, using humor in Westworld? You've uh, already got a weird world to try to present. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I'll answer part of it and you can jump in. I mean, I think part of it is because there is this meta level to the world and we were dealing with the technicians also scripting the Westworld, yeah. they were aware that you needed humor too. Um, you got some great audience. comic actors. We in have that. some great comic actors there, and we have some some new finds too. You know, and so there's the kind of, you know, even and the I think the great thing about doing kind of two genres mashed in one is the disconnect between, you know, there'll be this really serious love scene playing out and these like this like golden hued sunset, and then you'll just have some like klutzy tech just blundering about doing completely narcissistic shit, you know, and, and we got to make fun of writers, we got to make fun of ourselves, because we have these, like, <laughs> histrionic, operatic creative tantrums below ground, <laughs> while up above ground they're getting, like, shot and massacred, and it's just <laughs> so much worse, so, That's great. I don't know. Yeah, it's not apparent for the trailer, it's actually a workplace situation or comedy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like part of it actually is that, though, which is really cool. That's really fun. You get to play all the genres. It took an entire season before one of our actors turned around and was like, you know, we had this particularly uh, um, hair-raising scene in the finale, and, and, and which, which is about the contrast between these artificial lives that our characters are living, unbeknownst, you know, they don't understand that our show, the, in the inversion for the original film, for those of you who've seen it, is our, um, our show is about the robots who do not realize that they're in a fake Western. Mm -hmm. they, they think they're in a real Western. Uh, and, and so we had a particularly hair-raising scene like that, and finally two of the actors turned around, and they're like, we're trying to figure out what this is like. And they're like, it's fucking us. It's the actors and the writers. <laughs> like, you got it. Awesome. <laughs> that is great. Remember, TV campers, this year, due to the pandemic, ATX Festival Season 9 is going virtual, June 5th through 7th, 2020. It's ATX TV from the couch. For information about the status of the festival, go to atxfestival.com or follow us on social media at atxfestival. Now, back to the panel. Uh, question right here, yes. Oh, yeah. Hey. Um, my question is for Lisa. Because um, I know it's a bit unfair that we kind of force women in the industry to answer for all women. But... Um, but you're going I, to do that? But I'm going to do it, yeah. <laughs> But I think, for example, more than sci-fi, Western is very white, very male. Yeah. Yeah. And, um... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and so, how, do, how is it like to write Sorry. in this genre? Um, I think it's, it's an incredible opportunity, you know, um, because uh, I think that you know, traditionally Westerns, um, in their kind of golden day, uh, they were a lot about male honor, um, and again, you know, code of living. And I think when you take that, and there's still a lot of interesting and necessary things, frankly, to be said about male honor and redefining it for this age, right? But you can also take that lens and that investigation and apply it to all the other people on this Western frontier. And, and that's what we've really enjoyed doing and, and, and relished doing, because it, it, I think there's so much to dig into, and there's especially about like choosing a code of conduct when the world is against you, you know, when you're a more oppressed figure in an already lawless land, the stakes just get higher and higher. Um, so it's an incredibly gratifying space to work within, you know, and, and I can't say, you know, in, in this season that we cover all, all ground with all people, because, you know, we don't, and we, nev we never will be able to do it fully, but I, I will say that, um, that 
you know, we try to do our actors and the characters themselves the service of, of loving them, even if they're villains, and empathizing with them and knowing what they're going to go through and how hard it is. And, and it's, it's a really wonderful task because, uh, you know, a, a man like my husband has to write like an uh, African-American, oh, actually, she's British in this, you know, prostitute at the turn of the century. And, and it opens your mind a little and it makes you question assumptions, just as it does for me to write like a swashbuckling white gunslinger who's male. Um, and so uh, I think it's a, it's a lesson in empathy and it's, uh, it's humbling and, and really gratifying. Thank you. Next question. Actually, mine kind of piggybacks on hers. She had a really good question. Um, when you are writing a historical situation for a modern audience, how do you go about making sure that the, the portrayals are modern, but also true to the racism and the sexism and stuff of the time? <laughs> We, we did Yost. a modern show. That's not our question. That's fine. Um, n now I'm remembering what your question was from before. Thank you. Um, we, uh, you know, it's important to, to have your 19th century hat on, right? Are you guys with me? Um, but you're, we're not just telling, it's not just a, an historical treatise. You know, we're not, this isn't history class. So um, the challenge is always to try to figure out how to tell um, a contemporary story about contemporary issues that are relevant to a contemporary audience, mm -hmm. but um, are sitting within the sort of authentic environment that you've created within your show. So, um, and that's what I was talking about, gun control issues and all that sort of stuff. Um, those are contemporary issues. You know, we don't, they, they weren't dealing with them then, so it wasn't relevant to characters in our show. but. Um, I think it's important to, to be in the now, you know, and this is sort of what Lisa was saying, you know, we weren't living then, we don't know what those people were really facing or what they were really feeling, but we can imagine, because um, that's what we're paid to do, to imagine things, um, what the circumstances must have been like and try to put ourselves into it, that's the contemporary spin, but then hold to sort of a a period aesthetic, if possible. You remember when you got the phone call from the higher-up who shall remain unnamed, who's wider than me, <laughs> said, this is during four seasons, said, I'm not comfortable with the N-word. Yeah. And we're like, <laughs> well, what, <we're>, now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as a sort of a liberal white dude who had really never said the N-word out loud um, except in a writer's room, and it made me feel really awkward. Here I was uh, arguing for characters to be able to say the N-word on television. Um, and uh, it was a really weird place to be, especially with a network who has, you know, The Walking Dead on, and they chop people to bits, and that doesn't seem to bother them, but language was an issue for them. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it is, I mean, I think what you were getting at it before is it's a matter of perspective, right? Is we can, we can present the views that they had at the time, but give a per contemporary perspective well, you on can it. Also or you can also do it in an irresponsible fashion. Absolutely. You know, if, if, a, if a TV show exists for a reason, it's to provide a medical for, metaphorical platform, hopefully, for us to talk around the water cooler. And you can sling that word around for no reason whatsoever, and that would be very offensive. But if you are willing to... to 
see it through the facet of where we are today and what we're talking about today, then I think it, it, it can be very helpful. Sure. And, and just as an example. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think any conversation about Westerns on television uh, would be remiss if we didn't mention uh, Deadwood and what that show did to uh, move the genre along in a lot of ways. Do any of you guys have thoughts on that? Well, it proved that um, Tim Oliphant looked good in a cowboy hat, so. <laughs> Helpful to you. But I mean, Deadwood was another deconstruction of the Western um, and, you know, looks like Westworld is doing the ultimate deconstruction of the Western, yeah. um, at least for, for this time. So that was one thing that Deadwood was really onto. Yeah. Uh, every single review when we, when we premiered was, well, it's not Deadwood. <laughs> well, fuck you. I'm not trying to beat Deadwood. You know? That's, that's, that may be said, but Westworld is going to face It's No Hell on Wheels. <laughs> I doubt it. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, let's just uh, go down the line. I usually end by asking what you guys are watching on television. Instead, let's talk about Westerns. And uh, tell me either your, your, some of your favorite Westerns in movies, on television, uh, anything, starting with you, John. Well, it was great fun. Lisa was, you know, had watched fewer Westerns than I had. Because our show is about sort of the you know, the meta-Western, the idea of a Western, you know, articulated by Anthony Hopkins' character and a group of writers sort of creating a Western you can inhabit, we felt like we had to go back and watch all of the Westerns and, and try to sort of pull <laughs> out great. the best tropes. And uh, it, it was kind of a fascinating journey because I grew up watching many of them, but revisiting them again really struck um, by, and it's kind of interesting watching genres exhaust themselves yeah. because all the stories, you know, we flatter ourselves, uh, but you know, this shit has all been done before. All these stories have been told before. And we just, you know, we find a new mode that we're interested in. Right now it's superheroes, right? And it's all the same stories, mm -hmm. but just with different, different kind of silly costumes, right? Um, <clears throat> and going through it again, you saw just a, just, it's like a bounded infinity. The amount of, 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 of variations on a theme you could find within it. Uh, the ones that stuck out, the three, we were just, as we were walking over here, talking a little bit about them. Um, Unforgiven, which I think is a, is, a, is a masterpiece and a great example of when a genre exhausts itself, it collapses down into, you know, a black hole and that's Unforgiven, right? It's like yeah. Clint Eastwood saying, concentrated and Western. we're done. Right? <laughs> Hopefully not done. But um, <clears throat> Unforgiven, uh, The Wild Bunch, hugely influential film for me. I saw the, the re-release when it was, uh, when, when Warner's put it back out again. <laughs> uh -oh. And, uh, and, and uh, all the Leone films. Those, those for me were the touchstones. I grew up two older brothers, and so occasionally I'd be able to sneak and look at Fistful of Dollars. And, um, and in particular, one of the ones that we really came back to is Once, Once Upon a Time in the West, which is a fucking masterpiece. Yeah. With an incredibly strong female character. Graham? Um, I'll just mention, because uh, the, the three I mentioned before, um, you know, Ride the High Country, Wild Bunch, and uh, Unforgiven, I would throw in another peck and paw that's sort of forgotten over the years, but it's worth checking out, called The, uh, the Ballad of Cable Hogue, with Jason Robarts. And one of the things that peck and paw loved was the sense of an end of an era, men out of time, you know, that no, they no longer fit in to that world. Wild Bunch is certainly that. Ride the High Country is that. And Ballad of Cable Hogue is a much softer movie. It's not a traditional Western any more than, let's say, Tender Mercies is a, tr is a Western. But um, it still has it, that, that period and that feeling. Um, it's a beautiful, lyrical little movie. Mm -hmm. Jonathan? Um, my first film was a Western. It was in 1992. 
It was a spaghetti western with guys named Terence Hill and Bud Spencer, who were the famous spaghetti western stars of Europe. So in that vein, uh, they were put together by Sergio Leone. In that vein, Tom Popo, the great ramen noodle western out of Japan, is really a classic. If you have not seen it, and you can walk away and watch Tom Popo, it's absolutely wonderful. Cool. John? I think if um, we never quite achieved um, a comparison to Cat Blue, but that... Uh, that movie is just unbelievable. It's so good. Um, uh, no, Helen Wheels wasn't Cat Blue, really. But um, we, we, we loved, uh, you know, for our show, what we used for inspiration um, was pretty much anything with Lee Marvin in it. So we watched The Professionals, Monty Walsh, uh, some of those great westerns. Um, I, loved, I particularly loved a movie called There Was a Crooked Man. Did you guys ever see that? I don't, who is that? I've never seen it. It was with um, Kirk Douglas. And uh, it's a really, it's a quirky, weird, sort of late 60s uh, Western, just before the spin, you know, when um, Butch Cassidy came and kind of turned the Western genre on its head. Also, anything with Robert Redford, um, you know, Jeremiah Johnson, Butch Cassidy, uh, those movies were big touchstones for us on this show. Cool. Yeah, there's so many for... (laughs) There's so many great forgotten ones uh, that I, I, I have to say, Monty Walsh, The Professionals, which is, I'm willing to bet the idea for the A-Team came from. <laughs> so it's worth watching it just from that, that viewpoint. Um, and then um, My Darling Clementine is a, is a forgotten classic. Uh, John Ford, it's the tombstone story, but I think better. And it um, has just a, it, it's a, um, it's, Henry Fonda plays wider, and it's Victor Mature plays an amazing Doc Holliday. It's a beautiful film. Nice. Lisa, are there any you want to add on that you discovered in, in watching these? <laughs> what were some that, that you keep coming back to, though, uh, mentally, maybe in the writer's room or in your own writing? Uh, you know, I, I think the one that, the one that opened the doors for me and said, Westerns can be for me too. And not just in a way that I appreciate the craft and everything, but in the way in which I felt a very visceral connection with it. It was, it was um, Once Upon a Time in the West. That was a transformative moment for, for me when we were watching it because um, I, I just understood and, and loved all the characters, even if I, I disagreed with their choices. It was beautiful and languorous at the beginning. It just took its time and I never felt bored. I just wanted to see people drinking water from their hats. And by the end, you know, I was watching Claudia Cardinale and she took all of the kind of tropes about, you know, are you a virgin or a whore? Are you the woman in white or the woman in red? Or, you know, and she turned them upside down a million times and put them through a spin cycle. And you don't really know where you come out. And it ends with the guy telling her it's okay to be sexually harassed. It's all so confusing. <laughs> but, but life is confusing. And, and I admired the strength with which she kind of confronted it and, and, and made it on her own terms. So, and her so and that, Jack Palance together. Yeah. Or it's just Fantastic. On, on fire. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Correct answers all. Thank you guys so much. Please give a hand to all of our panelists. Thank you all for being here. This season of The TV Campfire is produced by ATX Television Festival in collaboration with Anthony Luciani and AJ Myers. For more information on this year's festival, go to atxfestival.com or check out our social media at ATX Festival.